How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is The Review, a podcast from the Atlantic's culture team about movies, television, and all the things we make to entertain ourselves. I'm Sophie Gilbert, a staff writer at The Atlantic, and I'm joined today by two other staff writers on our culture team, Megan Garber. Hi. And Hannah Georges. Hello, hello. How is everyone? Have you been waiting three quarters of an hour for a gin and tonic? (laughs) I can't say that I have, thankfully. I've been waiting a long time for a gin and tonic. I'm still waiting. <laughs> I think I'll be waiting about seven hours for a gin and tonic, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> Just in case anyone is listening to this and hasn't seen the season finale of Succession, <laughs> I'm not really that much of a lush. This is a reference to the, of course, epic line between Roman and Kendall in probably the most emotional scene from Sunday night's season finale. And I wanted to ask you both, and I'll start with you, Megan, what did you think of the finale and of this season in general? How did it play with you? Ooh, um, I really loved the finale. I thought it closed so many doors in a very good way, like tied up a lot of plot lines and yet left a lot open for further exploration. So I was I was really into it. I mean, the Monopoly game that they played at the very beginning of the <laughs> yes. episode, that was genius. Shit. What? I think you might have um, accidentally been cheating. <laughs> what? I was only stealing so I could win. Yeah, cheating's part of it. I agreed with you, Sophie, that at the beginning of the season, as you wrote in your early review, that it did the show did feel stuck to me. It felt like we were just seeing a lot of the same sort of plot lines and cycles and interactions happening over and over. And it did feel like on a certain level the show was stuck, you know. But by the end of the season, I felt that they had really resolved a lot of those issues, but also sort of made a point about what I think is one of the show's ultimate structural elements of its satire, which is that so much happens and yet nothing meaningfully changes. And I Mm. thought basically, despite all of the um, surprises in the final episode, the bombshells that were dropped and all of that, like fundamentally we're in the same universe, right? So there's so much narrative propulsion, but there's very little structural change. And I think that that felt satisfying to me as a viewer, but I also felt that it served the show satire. Yeah. I, I have lots of more to say about this, but but Hannah, first tell me tell me what you thought. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the moment I finished the finale, I wanted to rewatch it, which mm-hmm. I think for me is the highest uh, compliment I can give anything that I'm watching, um, especially like 
what I want to both appreciate all of the dialogue that was happening, which like, good Lord, every single line in that I was like, oh, okay, we're just doing barbs on barbs on barbs. Cool, cool. Um, um, but there, there was something about this episode uh, that was just so beautiful to look at. And I almost mm. wanted to replay it just on mute and just sort of mm. appreciate like all of the incredible composition, right? Which felt so, I mean, I'm thinking of that scene, right? That really emotional scene where Kendall's sort of sitting on the floor and his two siblings are sort of flanking mm. him and standing, right? And just the way that those shots are composed. There's such a trauma and such a beauty and such a gravity to the visual composition of this finale in a way that felt, I think, a little bit different from the season two and season one finales. I think that's a really good point. It, to me, that trilogy kind of looked like a corrupted heart or like a sculpture. It was, it was so, I mean, all three season finales have been directed by Mark Mylod and they've all had this real, like, visual, gorgeous, like, cinematic quality that is just stunning and it's interesting that you said that because I think I, that's maybe part of what I've been missing throughout season three mm-hmm. and and maybe that's the pandemic's fault as in you know they probably weren't able to go on location maybe as much as they did in for example season two in which they were always kind of popping around to hunting lodges in Budapest right. <laughs> you know our guesties or uh, people's mansions and you know the Catskills <laughs> it was constantly like one location after another which which for me as a viewer was very gratifying because you do have this right. just gorgeousness of the locations. But also I found it interesting for the characters because they were constantly thrown into unfamiliar situations in a way that made them very tense and fractious and stirred a lot of conflict, which <laughs> I really love in the show. And and so, yeah, when I reviewed season three, I was given the first seven episodes out of nine, which is a little unfortunate because all the good stuff really happens in the last two, right? It sure does. It sure does. (laughs) So the first seven episodes, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot, lot, lot of penis jokes. Um, What else can we say (laughs) happened in the first seven episodes? I, I guess like if season one was Kendall's season and season two was kind of Shiv's turn as like heir apparent to the Waystar Royco fortune, season three seemed to be Roman. He was the one who was closest to his father. He was the one who seemed to be sort of setting himself up as like Logan's moral, which, or maybe immoral, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> right. Immoral heir. Um, but I found, I found after season two, which was so well crafted and so beautiful, I found season three frustrating through the first seven hours just because it seemed like nothing was happening. But then what I've, what I've come to realize now, and, and I, I'm curious what you guys think on this, is the Monopoly board reference made me think that maybe this show is essentially a game of Monopoly and we're just going round and round and round the board and people go up yeah. and people go down and people go to jail and people come out and people, you know, it seemed like the perfect metaphor for what this show is trying to do. And, you know, I do kind of still hate that they leave all the great emotional drama and pathos and Kendall's breakdowns to the finale every single season. But at the right. same time, it's so powerful when it comes. I don't know, you guys. I don't know. I'm blown into a million pieces. I want to say, too, like, it's not that I wanted Kendall to die. I, I think Kendall's one of the great TV characters of all time. And, and yeah. we can talk more about Jeremy Strong and his method later. Um, <laughs> yes. But, <laughs> but he, to me, is like the bloodied, beating heart of this show. <laughs> and, but I was fascinated by the idea at the end of the penultimate episode when Kendall seemed to kind of sink into his pool lounger. I was fascinated by the idea of what that kind of disruption might do to the show and like how things might realign and the, the sort of drama that it would introduce. And then ultimately the show 
fainted a little bit away from that, even though all season it had been dropping these allusions to death. You know, Kendall had been standing yeah. on top of tall buildings, as he always does. But when it backed away from that kind of shakeup, I felt a little disappointed, but I also think that the show figures it has a formula and it's it's sticking with it for now. What do you think, Megan? That was my thought, that it, it is a formula, that the formula is a big part of the satire. In some ways, I think, I mean, all the hints at, at Kendall's death somewhat mirror the hints at Logan's death from first, like the first season. You know, I mean, the whole mm-hmm. show starts with this idea that this man is probably going to die. What happens when that takes place? And everyone's trying to sort of shuffle themselves around that inevitability. And yet it never happens. And he just quickly recovers and then everything's back to normal. And it just seems like again and again, we see, you know, what happens if this major change takes place in this world and then the change never comes. Mm-hmm. And I think the show is trying to sort of write that into its storyline. Dad, we can't do this bullshit forever. Maybe I want your clothes. You can do the mail. Keep you rattling around. In an interview, one of the writers of the show talked about how the writers will talk about the phrase unsuccessiony. So a writer might pitch an idea and then someone else will say, well, that's not successiony. And um, she said what that means is the plot that is being pitched has too much consequence for a character. It ends with mm. too much like direct effect for their actions. And part of the point of this show, she said, is that they can't face too many meaningful consequences. And I thought that was a really interesting point that I think I see sort of, you know, cyclically being played out again and again in in the show. Yeah, that's really revealing. I think there was a New Yorker piece earlier this season that compared it to Seinfeld, where nothing ever really happened. Totally. Dynamics between the characters are, are what you're watching for. But at the same time, like, especially with Kendall, and it is interesting to me, one of the tidbits from the New Yorker profile of Jeremy Strong was that he thinks he's in a drama, whereas the rest of the cast think they're in a comedy. (laughs) And, you know, there's been this great debate since Succession debuted. Is it a drama? Is it a comedy? And uh, I interviewed Frank Rich, one of the producers, about it once, and he was like, you know, we don't like boxes, and, you know, Jesse Armstrong's just an amazing writer, and when we have a writer like this, like, we just, we roll with it. We don't try and categorize anything. But it's a little... (laughs) Which I I understand in so much of good TV these days is like that, but, but also there is kind of this disconnect where the scenes with Kendall are just, to me, more riveting and more rewarding and more uh, emotive and more dramatic and, like, more intense than anything else in the show. And I sort of miss them (laughs) when they're not there. And it makes me wonder, like, if the show leaned toward drama a little bit more, like, would it be better? Or, or, Or do you guys love it as this sort of amalgam of both? I love both because it's messy. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I love a messy TV show. But that must, I mean, when you were saying earlier that this this has been thought of as Roman season, I actually, I see that and I see all the ways that, that makes sense. And also, I still think that every season is fundamentally a Kendall season. Yeah. For that same yeah. reason, right? That like, because he is the emotional anchor of this show, that even when, you know, even when we have Shiv thinking of herself, at least as the heir apparent, or we have Rome sort of cozying up to Logan, that's still like the core of this and what keeps this grounded to the extent that it is grounded at all yeah. um, mm-hmm. is Kendall and like the intensity of the inner turmoil that he feels mm-hmm. Compared yeah. to everyone else. Yeah, I would I, agree with that. I mean, when I say sort of season, what I'm thinking of is like each season seems to have a character who's pegged as the successor. Right, totally. Yeah. totally. You know, that word that's in the title. <laughs> but, and, and this season it did kind of feel like Rome, and I think next season it's, it's going to be Tom. I've always liked you, Tom. I like you too, Kendall. I mean, I have notes. Uh. And Tom is Ooh, just a lot of fun to talk about. So. 
I mean, Megan, what did you think of Tom's arc this season? Yeah, well, one of the things that this show does so well is sort of appreciate the way that environment and circumstance can affect the way people act, like the different Mm. elements of themselves that they sort of manifest, you know? Um, And I think one of the sort of tragedies of Kendall is that you know, you could imagine him not in this world, not the son of Logan Roy. And you could actually imagine him, I think, being kind of an amazing person. You know, he, in a lot, I, I do think so. Like, he, you know, he, he, he's an idealist. He can be, when he chooses to be, extremely sensitive and caring. And mm-hmm. I just think he has a lot of these wonderful qualities sort of embedded in him. And yet they've just been sort of systematically beaten out of him by his father and sort of by the world, you know? And to me, that's just one of the great tragedies of the show and the way that, you know, despite all the comedy that comes from that, you know, and all the ways that he's a fish out of water, essentially, that's the great tragedy of it. And it's heartbreaking to watch it play out because you know he could be so much more. He could be so different under different circumstances. And I mentioned that in relation to Tom because I think actually Tom is another great example of that on the more comedy side where like Tom in relation to Logan, for example, will just be, you know, completely sycophantic, you know, obsequious, uh, same with Shiv, you know. So he's one person when he relates to the Roys, but when he relates to Greg, for example, he's this unhinged cruelty monster and capable <laughs> of so much awfulness, you know? And I think that that's a really smart thing that the show observes. I don't always like who I am, Greg. Yeah, I, I get that. You know, Tom, according to circumstance, is completely different. He has the capacity for both within him. And I think for the first two seasons, we saw the obsequious Tom, and now we're seeing the monster Tom. And I'm loving the drama of it. <laughs> well, we also see, and I think we see this a lot in different workplaces, the way that leaders lead trickles down. Mm-hmm. And so you're seeing one of the ways that Tom gets Greg on board with his plan, I guess, to betray his wife and the Roy siblings to Logan is to promise him 20 Gregs <laughs> you know and so this idea that, that like everyone just wants someone to be a butthead too like, <laughs> 20 uh, Gregs for the Tomlet <laughs> how would 20 Gregs even fit in a room <laughs> what a thought uh, Hannah what did you think of Tom's arc this season oh my god you know there's a thing that a friend that Bolu uh, Babalola tweeted which was just you know Shiv really thought she could say I may not love you but I do love you to a human mm-hmm. being and everything yeah. would be peachy right yeah. and I think that as much as it's like obviously unconscionable what Tom has done and like I find him to be an incredibly difficult character and a lot of what he's done this season obviously is just like fundamentally, you know, it's like treasonous in the context of his marriage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, since when was Shiv actually ever really in it or loyal to him to begin with? And so I have found it satisfying to watch him push back against that, even in this like big dramatic way, even though, you know, I have a soft spot for Shiv despite her being a tyrant. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Sometimes I think, should I maybe listen to the things you say directly in my face when we're at our most intimate? Yeah, it's interesting because it's, the only real relationship, romantic relationship that you see play out in the show, but at the same time, everything in it is defined by business and ambition and it's right. all one-upmanship, it's all power. And so it's not it's not a real marriage in that sense, which kind of maybe makes what Tom does to Shiv a little more, un- I mean, it's definitely understandable, but <laughs> maybe more defensible within, within the marital realm. Yeah, I mean, their whole relationship feels like a case against marriage. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And then maybe really the real does. marriage is just Tom and Greg because, you know, that yeah. they've had some well, sweet moments. Yeah. 
Tom was going to take the rap so that Greg didn't have to go to jail. They are, of course, Sporus and Nero. Tom made that yes. really <laughs> kind of sick and terrifying analogy about Nero, I think, having one of his slaves castrated so that he could marry him. And, and he likened his relationship with Greg to that. Um, sweet, romantic. <laughs> right. So, um, do you want to come with me, Sporus? There's also such a sort of interesting chaos on the show when it comes to just relationships in general and their definitions. So many nods to incest, for example, you know, Logan and all of the children. And you have just, I mean, you know, Roman and Jerry, you have just all these different examples of relationships that refuse to cleave to traditional, (laughs) traditional pairings, just traditional ways of being humans to each other and of relating to each other. And the fact that there just simply aren't a lot of relationships that we would recognize as real in this show feels to me like part of the satire. Like they just simply can't love each other. They don't know how to. They don't even have the dialogue for it, the definitions for it. Everything is just sort of emotionally chaotic in this world. Yeah. It makes me think of earlier in the season, Caroline Collingwood, uh, played by Harriet Walter, who's one fantastic English character actress, said of Logan, he never saw anything he loved that he didn't want to kick it just to see if it would still come back. And every, I think you saw that dynamic play out with different characters this season. And Shiv, you know, when she heard that was like, I'll be that dog. I'll come back. He can kick Mm. me as many times as he wants. And then Tom, obviously, I kept wondering throughout the season, like, is Tom going to break? Is Tom going to turn traitor to the Roys? Like, he he was so depressed. You were like, when has this man had enough? He sees how poisonous this family is. Like, when, what is his endgame? And then in the end... He seemed to think that he could still win the game of Roy. <laughs> and I don't know that anyone ever does except Logan, but I guess we'll we'll see more of it play out next season. And he knows um, that. I mean, Tom knows that. Tom said it himself. Logan's the only person he's ever seen come out on top. So it's an interesting choice to have made knowing that. Yeah, I just I just keep thinking about all of the scenes earlier in the season where he talks about his prison consultant and the oh. <laughs> right. So my prison consultant called. It looks like the place upstate might be full. Like oh just gosh. the number of times he said that phrase. Like I almost want to go back and tally how often he referred to this person. But you think about the the level of like studiousness that he brought to this potentially harrowing experience, and you think about what somebody who puts that level of studying into maybe going to prison would put into you know, doing, making this incredibly grand gesture of betrayal if he decides that's what he wants to do. You guys, that's a, that's a deeply dangerous and calculated person in a way that I don't think we had seen uh, mm. before. Yeah, that's a really yeah. good point. It implies that Tom has sort of evil depths that we haven't seen yet. Yeah, I mean, even the Nero and Sporus thing, right? Like the castration and marriage with Sporus is entirely dependent on the fact that Nero first pushed his wife down the stairs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just like such a visceral way of harming somebody and, you know, that we would see what happens in the finale. Yeah. Well, I think if the show has a mission statement, and the writers have said this, it's about exposing how unchecked wealth and power corrupts everything it comes into contact with. And and I think if Logan is the is the kind of centripetal force in the center that everything else revolves around. You've seen this season how people tend to get darker the closer they get to him. And I I think Roman's arc this season was really interesting because he was really awful. (laughs) And I've I've enjoyed him very much as a character in the past. And I think one one of the first times I really got on board with Succession was the season one episode where Kendall goes on a meth binge in New Mexico and Roman goes to rescue him. 
And it was the first time I think that you see characters in the show genuinely care for one another or take care of one another or do something that isn't like sniping or one-upmanship. Mm-hmm. And so that made me think like maybe there is something here that hasn't always been revealed. But then all of season three, Roman has just been the most <laughs> toxic, poisonous, awful to everyone, making constant incest jokes to his sister and oh my God. sending mm. pictures of his penis to Jerry, you know, which, you know, if they... Maybe I won't go there. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just, it's interesting to see how Logan's influence does seem to corrupt not just things, but people. And it it makes me wonder what's going to happen next. I hate to say this because I love you, but you're kind of evil. Don't talk about things you don't understand. You know, you see it again and again in the show where something huge and carefully orchestrated where these people who sort of run the world have made their plans for their domination and then Mm. some hilariously absurd small thing will go wrong, like Roman sending the picture to the wrong person. Like in season one, Kendall gets stuck in traffic. Like, you know, Logan has a UTI, you know, and it's just these, I think, small ways of the the show, I think maybe arguing that, um, well, it's certainly sort of mocking their power, I think, in a certain way. But I think it's trying to argue that whatever machinations they might do, it's going to be checked somehow, hopefully, by just sort of the physical realities of the world and the emotional realities of being human. So to talk about that Jeremy's Strong profile, it was written by Michael Shulman in in New Yorker. It came out, I think, a couple of hours before last week's penultimate episode dropped, the one where it seemed that Kendall may have kind of drifted into the bottom of the pool. And and to me, it, it had quite a reaction on the internet, we can say, um, because it, it was a fascinating profile and it explored the ways in which Jeremy Strong is a very um, intense method actor. You know, his kind of tutelage by Daniel Day-Lewis and his like complete commitment to roles, the sort of blurred lines, the that costumes that he wears sometimes offset and the way that he'll shave his head after Kendall has shaved his head and, and all these details. And um, I found it fascinating. There was a response from the internet afterwards. People who were friends with Jeremy Strong, Aaron Sorkin, released... <laughs> A long statement about the piece um, and the way he was quoted in it via Jessica Chastain's Twitter page. But there was sort of this massive overreaction from actors who seemed to want to defend Jeremy Strong. And I don't know that he needed defending because I think the piece was great. And it also pointed out that his work makes the case for itself. And certainly like in the finale in the episode that we just saw, you, you really see that he is... Everyone in the show is a tremendous actor, but he is working at a level that I think is above anyone else, even, even you know, Shakespearean old Brian Cox. What what do you guys think? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I also, I mean, I, I appreciate the meme that was started by Jessica Chastain posting, uh, <laughs> posting, <laughs> posting the Aaron Sorkin letter, right? Like a bunch of people were just saying Aaron Sorkin doesn't have social media, so he asked me to post this letter with, you know, all sorts of random content. <laughs> <laughs> so for one, I was amused by that being a result of this profile. Uh, so thank you to the New Yorker for that. <laughs> um, but no, I, I mean, I really, I really enjoyed the story, and I thought that the the celebrity reaction to it. You know, I think that in one of her tweets, she referred to it as like snark, right, and like clickbait selling, and all all these words that sort of celebrities kind of use to 
you know, not to be sensitive about it, but to denigrate journalism uh, that it, that is like the least bit critical of them. And I think that there's like certainly a media studies, hmm. you know, case study in that. Um, and that reflects a lot of what we've been seeing in recent years and sort of all these big questions about access journalism. But I don't actually think that the piece was as nearly as unflattering as she or, you know, Sorkin were suggesting, right? They sort of made it sound like a hit piece when really what was conveyed in the profile is that he's, you know, a prickly, overcommitted person who maybe isn't at all nice to himself when he's working. Mm. And as a result, not always the kindest to the people around him. I think that's what Brian Cox said about him, right? In the profile, that it's the cost to himself that worries me. Mm. I just feel that he has to be kinder to himself and therefore has to be a bit kinder to everybody else. Mm. That's such an interesting quote. Right. It's such a like paternal, caring thing to say, yeah. like a concerned sentiment and not sort of like this guy's a raging asshole we're sick of his shit right like it's just like a <laughs> fundamentally different thing and i think a lot of people even in the moments where people he's he's worked with has sort of communicated frustration or or what have you with his with his work there was always an undercurrent of like yeah but have you seen you've seen this guy right so you know you know what happens when he's on a screen you know the ways that it pays off yeah. totally i agree with all of that and i i think too i mean one of the great things that the the writing of that profile did was sort of i think hint at kind of broader questions that actually felt very consonant with what succession as a show is trying to do like you know we have in the culture right now i think a lot of questions about how much can artists and geniuses and people that we sort of put at the top of our various hierarchies like how much can they get away with? You know, can they play by different rules than other people? You know, and yeah. just sort of in very like small, minute um, ways, I think this profile was kind of asking similar questions, you know, like because there's one way to read it where it's just Jeremy Strong is. Yeah. yeah. And I think part of it is a debate about method acting writ large. We ran a piece a few years ago by Angelica Bastian about mm. the ways in which Hollywood has really kind of ruined the idea of method acting. And she pointed to Jared Leto and his. <laughs> <laughs> his, his antics playing the Joker, which I think included like sending dead animals maybe to his cast members. There was a lot of like very like used condoms and boxes and just Ooh. doing all these disgusting pranks so that he could stay in character, which, you Absolutely know, is, not. is one thing in, in a high work of drama and another thing <laughs> in a DC movie. <laughs> like, is it worth it? I, uh, we can have that discussion another time. But it, it is, I don't know. I, I, I think the I do think that the finale made the case that Jeremy Strong should do whatever he wants to do because he's mm. he's so good. <laughs> that said, I don't have to work with him. <laughs> right, right. I was going to say, it's, I feel like it's easy for us to opine on that from right. yeah. as people who interact with Jeremy Strong via this HBO show. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's a, I think that there's a really big related question at the core of the, the story as well, which is about work and what an obsession with work and what a dedication mm. with work does to an actor, yes, and to somebody who does this sort of incredibly high bar work, um, but also to all of us, right? And that, that yeah, is also a related yeah. question to what Succession itself is getting at. Um, and to quote Brian Cox again, <laughs> here I am. Now I am attached to Logan Roy, it seems. <laughs> um, Your season six. No. <laughs> oh, God. It's one episode, just me being like, uh-uh, this is too much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but he, he, says this, he says this great thing where he says, you know, actors are funny creatures. I've worked with intense actors before. It's a particularly American disease, mm, I think, this inability yeah. to separate yourself off while you're doing the job. 
right? And that's not to say that there aren't, you know, issues in British television. And, you know, like, obviously, people can act in all sorts of ways across the pond and whatnot. Uh, but I, I do think that there's a there's a veneration of work and that there is mm. a veneration of losing oneself in the work and, like, yeah, work-related yeah. martyrdom um, that is very American. And I, I think that informs how we as as people, as critics, um, as folks who who watch this show, think about what it is that Jeremy Strong puts into his work and what it is that that demands of him and, and of the people around him. Hmm. Look, I really value all the work you do, honestly, but let's try harder. Guys, I want to talk about <laughs> Shiv. And, and Hannah, I think yes. you and I might fight on this because I, I don't, well, I'll put my feelings out there. I don't like her at all. <laughs> But tell me, tell me why Shiv is your favorite character and what you like about her. I don't like her either, actually. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't really like any of the characters on the show. I find her compelling because I think there are a lot of things about the ways she is terrible that mm. I enjoy watching playing out on screen. Again, not to be meme-y about it, but like she's sort of the like a sentient like girl boss gatekeep mm. gaslight meme, right? Yeah. Like she just does all of it. I enjoy watching, um, not rooting for, but just watching like a bad girl boss, like an evil girl boss character. I love it. There's just something about like weaponized femininity that I find entertaining to watch. Um, and I think mm -hmm. in the context of this show, she serves as an interesting foil to her brothers in part because she is the only sibling who's a woman, right? So there's, there's certain ways that she attempts to weaponize that or to throw that against them or, you know, feels herself being actually affected by their sexism or their what have you um, that that just lends interesting like narrative contrast. Um, and so I like I like watching that play out. But her and Tom has been a fascinating thing to watch play out. The earlier seasons, I sort of was amused by her treatment of him. Um, and now, you know, kind of coming into the end of season two, early season three, I'm like, girl, you got to stop. You have to stop. <laughs> you have got to stop. Right. Um, and that scene where she says, you know, like, let's let's have a baby. And they sort of later do all of that, like market talk about what to do with the embryo or the egg oh. or what have you. I was like, this is dark. And this is dark <laughs> in a way that is different from some of the overt like business talk because it is like we're talking about life and we're talking about love and we're talking about, you know, family in a way that is different than some of the ways that the that, that family gets discussed on the show. So she just serves as like a really interesting avatar of all of that for me, I think. Um, yeah. And yeah, also, I, I got to say, especially in the earlier seasons, some of the outfits just personally, <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed. So well, this is the <laughs> thing that she though, like back in season one, she was wearing all this crazy color and like scarves and her hair was yeah. long and Chunky she kind of, sweaters. She works in politics, but she dressed like much hippier and like much more casual. Yeah. And then in season two, as she got closer to the seat of power, she suddenly, everything was beige. Her hair got yeah. short. Yeah. It was all these neutrals. And I've noticed recently that in lots of episodes, her outfits are almost identical to Jerry. And so you wonder, like, is this because yeah. she's yeah. Yeah. like modeling herself on Jerry? Is this what's confusing Roman? <laughs> <laughs> It's really, but it's really fascinating to see like how the colors of what she's wearing portray that kind of bloodlessness in her. None of her outfits seem comfortable. You know, no. the way the way Sarah Snook plays her, um, I think is part of that where she's always just, her posture is always just a little too good where you yeah. feel her awareness of her own presence and the room she takes in, in a room. And um, you just feel that kind of slight physical discomfort with what she has chosen to put on her body, how that choice, you know, allows her and doesn't allow her to move through the world. So I'm thinking of, in particular, the scene we talked about before, the sort of triptych scene with the three siblings where... Yes. Um, 
um, Roman and Shiv are trying, as best they can, to comfort Kendall. And Shiv is wearing these very chunky, very high heels in, you know, the dusty, hilly Italian landscape. And it's, you can just tell, it's very uncomfortable. It's not practical. She tries to lean down at one point to comfort right. Roman. And it's it's a physical feat, actually, to do it because of what's on her body. The clothes are really functioning as kind of a metaphor for constraint in that moment, where even if she might want to be a better sister to to Kendall in that moment and actually give him a hug and be at his level, she physically can't because of the clothes. Right. There's a way that her foot leans at one yeah. point, that her ankle, t- right? That yeah. I just, as a person who has worn heels before, but not <laughs> any time recently, <laughs> that I just recognized immediately and sort of yeah. cringe because I could, I could almost feel it through the screen, right? Totally. Um, and I think so much, so much of that, um, that element of constraint is, is interesting to think about just in terms of like Shiv's body type, right? And mm-hmm. like, so many of the other younger women on the show are like incredibly thin and mm. are incredibly thin in ways that are like markers of wealth or that are associated with wealth for all of the reasons that we know them to be in, in the American imagination, right? And here mm. we have Shiv, who, you know, is wearing these tight dresses, yes, and these tight like pantsuits, yes, but whose body sort of is outside of the bounds of what we think of as acceptable for a certain kind of like moneyed white young-ish woman, right? And I wonder, like, to what extent they're trying to telegraph a bit of that as well. Yeah. There's one episode where Jerry gets out of an airplane uh, with a Shiv-style bob, like, totally flat. Like, just, it it feels like the show is really trying to suggest, you know, these two women who have been the main women of the show are in dialogue with each other in, like you said, Hannah, in these really interesting ways about sort of, like, what does it mean to be a girl boss in this world? And, you know, are they going to be pushed together simply because they are women? Are they going to be torn apart because of that? I think you see the answers to both of those in in two scenes. There's that scene in season two where Shiv goes to basically do the waste our Royco dirty work and talk to one of the women who's come forward about about being assaulted. And she kind of talks her out of testifying. But in the most insidious, like, I am taking your side. I just want to make sure that you know what this is going to mean to you. You know, your life is going to be upended. And, you know, in this sort of I'm protecting you way that is really despicable. And the good thing is, you're going to have a lot of people on your side. But the other people, normal people, they will doubt you. They'll say terrible things. And then she does the same thing with Jerry in season three when she, <laughs> Jerry yes. receives the items. And <laughs> after <laughs> after Roman sends one of his pictures to his father by mistake, and, and Shiv has this kind of really smarmy conversation with Jerry. I just think, Jerry, that you should report him to HR because if you don't it could be argued that you welcome these photos and that just undermines your position it's just that's my concern for you here it's such a good example of how like you said Hannah weaponized femininity and like the idea of sisterhood can be turned and twisted into something so poisonous well thank you for giving us so much thought and uh, I'll think it over okay to get back to sort of the big question of this like do either of you think that season four will be meaningfully different from one, two, or three? And if it's not, will it matter? Like the cyclical repetition of it? Is that just what we love it for? 
I have moments where I feel frustrated by it. And I have moments where like, even if, you know, sort of season four is like the Tom season, there are things about that where we'll hit certain beats and there will be certain moments of like, you know, there's going to be tension over a contract. And there's going to write all these sort of mm. <laughs> things that we know to be true in the like succession cinematic universe. Um, <laughs> and also, <laughs> and also like everybody is going to be batting at 100, right? I'm going to be sitting there like wrapped the entire time. And so I don't know that I am particularly inclined to complain a ton. Would I love to see like a fundamental shakeup, something begin the season in a way that disrupts how how we know the flow to go? Of course. But I I don't I don't I suspect that we won't get that. And also that by, you know, episode five or what have you, I'll be okay with that. <laughs> yeah. What do you think, Megan? No, same for me. Um I one one thread that I'm very interested in is this notional new baby from Logan <laughs> and sort of a notional oh, new oh. heir for the Roy family. And I can't decide if that feels like a little bit of a cheap way to add drama without fundamentally changing, you know, the setup of the chessboard and all that kind of stuff. Or if this is, you know, something that will cause meaningful change, you know, in the lives of this family. Because it seems like one of the takeaways from the finale of this season is that Logan has effectively given up on his genetic family as they currently exist, right? And so he's chosen Tom, he's chosen other people to sort of fill that slot. Um, and maybe the presence of a another child might change that, but it also seems absurd to imagine how that would be when we're talking about a notional infant <laughs> compared to actual <laughs> adult humans. But but I, I will be interested to see if they continue that thread and if so, how they do it. I guess he really doesn't rate you guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. Well, we need a plan to kill this baby. Uh, yeah. Wow. Finally, you found a worthy adversary. There are a couple of things that didn't fully play for me this season. And one was the idea that Logan would willingly give up power of his company mm -hmm. for money. Mm -hmm. I don't yeah. think we've ever seen anything in his personality that hints that he would do that, especially to a person who called him old to his face. Like right. we saw Shiv really get kind of voted off the island by him in season two when Marcia she called too. him a dinosaur. Yeah. 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 That was Marsha's We've seen like once this whole yeah. season. Yeah. And the, that, the other thing is Marsha negotiated this very expensive divorce settlement at the beginning of this season after Logan's, you know, Sarajevo excursion. So like the idea that suddenly after doing that, knowing how much money he would lose, he would be willing to just like commit to a new baby with his admittedly, you know, sexy assistant. But <laughs> those two things, sometimes it just, it feels like there are unanswered questions or things that are being done to serve the plot that aren't necessarily entirely true. And I'm interested to see with season four, like, Obviously, we've seen the Matson character played by Alexander Skarsgård tell Roman that he's interested in catastrophic failure. And I do think that Logan will find playing second fiddle extremely hard. And so th the business part of this is very interesting to me and will probably end up at the end of the season, you know, with Kendall crying about something and everyone <laughs> pretty much back in the same seats that they were in before. But I don't know that I mind if that's the case. I think the thing that made me a little sad this season is that season two was so good and the goods were kind of more democratically shared out between episodes like you really mm. did get like mm. you got the trip to scotland where you found out a little bit about why logan is the way he is and you know that really funny pastiche of like conventions <laughs> for rich people 
<laughs> our guestees, which was just amazing satire and um, bore on the floor. I think one of the best moments on television oh, ever. So like you got all these moments so early on and it was just, it, it just felt start to finish like a superlative season of television. So I'm hoping now that, now that the pandemic is maybe a little easier to work around, if not improved in any meaningful sense, <laughs> at least maybe that will impact the, the show that we see next season. That said, one of the things that we should talk about is the sixth episode of this season, What It Takes, where you see the Roys decamp to a political kingmaking conference. I, I, I couldn't tell if it was based on CPAC or if it was, you know, kind of something we don't know about because they really do pick the next president. <laughs> um, but you see Logan, you see Logan's power. So who do we like? You know, it feels like it's poised. So if you and Petkus come together and, and then the other donors follow, then it's... Exactly. We're picking. You haven't really seen the show yet get into the consequences of it. The, the, the candidate they ultimately go with is someone who's like fascism light, right? Like <laughs> they'll reference, you know, H. <laughs> cool, yeah. as we're talking about Hitler, you know. You know, H has some ideas, you know. And, and it was sort of unsettling in that really funny but not funny succession way. What, what did right. you guys think about that? I mean, it, it reminds me to take a brief aside that we've gone this far talking about the finale without having discussed Connor, right? Yes. Oh, oh my God. He's always <laughs> forgotten. pancake. I am the eldest son. All right. One of the things that I alternately like love about the show and hate about it is the way that the public at large is talked about. You know, like these characters, you hardly ever hear them reference like actual people. You you hear about like, what's the temperature? What's the climate? They care about what mm. sort of people in large think about them, what the markets think, all that kind of stuff. But in terms of just sort of an acknowledgement of, you know, the people at the business end of all of their weaponry and all that kind of stuff, you just don't hear a lot about about it in the show often doesn't really acknowledge them. You see like sort of passing screens of something on ATN, the news network, you know, or you just get these little sort of glimmering moments of recognition of all the very real power that these people have over everyone else's lives. And I think for the most part, that is definitely intentional and part of the satire. And, you know, this is supposed to be about the humans that, you know, shape everyone else's lives. But it sometimes drives me a little bit batty just because I wish that there were a little bit more acknowledgement, you know, of of the effects of the Roy family, you know, and you you get it often through kind of sanctimonious characters like Ewan, for example, who will, you know, just yeah. randomly mention how detrimental Logan is to America and the world and all that kind of thing. But it's it's expressed through, you know, a character who is not very likable and that kind of thing. Um, so sometimes I find myself craving just a little bit more acknowledgement of the actual effects of these people's decisions on everyone else. And so I loved uh, that episode, the What It Takes episode, because it was a direct acknowledgement of all that and how much power they do have and how casual they are with it and how so much of it comes down to, you know, Roman tells the fascist to give Logan a Coke and, you know, the whole world has changed. The whole course of history has changed, you know, and I, yeah. I think it's a, it's a really powerful moment, really good satire, but it also sort of gave me what I'd been craving, which was that acknowledgement of, you know, the world is run by these terrible people and um, what are the consequences of that? Done. He's talked about burning Qurans okay. and licensing press yeah, credentials. He's shifting the Overton window. It's interesting what you were saying about how you don't see how the characters think, because in the finale, you actually did see Logan's derision and disdain for the people who've made him his yeah. fortune. I think that was that line when he was talking to Matson about, like, when he moved to America, it was all like milk and gold, and now everyone's like fat as 
barking on meth and doing yoga, um, which, you know, it's a, I guess it's a, it's a nice snapshot of Logan's psyche, but not a portrait of anyone who seems to have any respect or sympathy or empathy for the, for the people he's catering to. Yeah. And Shiv and Tom have that exchange where Shiv basically says that Tom is doing well at ATM because he turned on the bigot spigot, yes. <laughs> you know, just so, well, I mean, just the fact that they could turn that into, you know, a funny, rhymy joke, you know, it says so right, much yeah. about those characters. It's such good writing, right. but yeah. also really hard to hear given the state of our actual world. Whoa. Um, some guy with an undercut just called me Soy Boy? Oh, don't worry, Greg. It's a nice safe space where you don't have to pretend to like Hamilton. Well, I like Hamilton. Sure you do. We all do. Uh, as we usually do, I think we should conclude with a game. And my, my question for you both this time is, if you had to be stranded on a desert island with a character from Succession, which one would you pick? Megan. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> okay, I'm get, first, I feel like I have to decide, is my goal survival or entertainment? <laughs> because if <laughs> my goal is... This is the American survi- question, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> and since I'm American, I think I'm going to choose entertainment, <laughs> in, which case, <laughs> in which case the answer would probably be Roman Roy. I just think wow. you know, we would we would die within like a day, but we'd have some good one-liners going down. And, you know, once you're stranded, I think that's all I'm going to ask for. So, so that's my choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, as a child of immigrants, if I may, I'm going to go with survival. <laughs> <laughs> and choose the other that side of that same coin, though, which is Jerry, uh, who is oh, probably the yeah. only person, aside from maybe Lisa, who only shows up like in bits and pieces, the, the lawyer, um, who I would trust to you know forage hunt really do anything of of value to keep us alive (laughs) (laughs) everything will serve her interests somehow (laughs) correct right right if the interests are staying alive then then yes (laughs) that's that's a good pick i think what about you sophie i'm really torn between greg because i i do think he has parts of his soul that are still nice deep down and and willa for kind of the same reason um willa i guess could in for entertainment value she could make plays (laughs) i don't know (laughs) whether they (laughs) want to survive or not one of the great like agonies of succession for me is we've never seen even a scene of willa's play like i'm i'm just dying for this but the play was the sands so yeah yeah so she might have like a deep embedded knowledge of the, of the sand. material workings of sand and the mites that lurk therein. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Sand in her play was was kind of toxic. <laughs> As in didn't that. So that's where Greg got his foot fungus. So yeah, maybe Will. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick Willa. Mm-hmm. Um, Ever the critic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's been really fun and enlightening talking with you both about this episode. Thank you so much for joining. That does it for the show. The review is produced by Kevin Townsend with help from AC Valdez. Our art is by Charlie Lemignon. I'm Sophie Gilbert. Thank you, Megan. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. Thanks, so. And the review will be back next week. 